Welcome to Tisky Sour. Free stories for you tonight. The spring statement, Rishi Sunak's economic update. I'll be getting expert economic analysis. We'll also be talking about P&O ferries. They came up today at PMQs. And the Royals in the Caribbean. It hasn't gone very well for them. I'll be joined in the second half of the show by Dahlia Gabriel. The backdrop for Rishi Sunak's spring statement is a cost of living crisis. In the short term, that's driven principally by high inflation. The Office for National Statistics has said inflation now stands at 6.2%. That's far higher than at any time in the past 10 years and the highest since 1992. The Office for Budget Responsibility also released their economic forecast today and suggested inflation is set to continue to rise they expect it to hit 8.7% by the end of the year. But the most striking projection from the OBR, so the Office of Budget Responsibility, concerns overall living standards because wages and benefits are not keeping up with inflation. Real disposable income is expected to fall by the largest amount since records began. They project that real household disposable income is set to fall this year by 2.2%, which would be a drop larger than any of the past 70 years. So this was the challenge. Would Rishi Sunak rise to it? But I want to help people now. So I'm announcing three immediate measures. First, I'm going to help motorists. Today, I can announce for only the second time in 20 years, fuel duty will be cut. Not by one, not even by two, but by five pence per litre. Over the last decade, it has been a conservative mission to promote tax cuts for working people and simplify the system. That's why, that's why conservative-led governments raised the income tax personal allowance from £6,500 in 2010 to the new level of £12,570. But the equivalent thresholds in national insurance, which define how much people can earn nix-free, are still around £3,000 less. Now, the Prime Minister pledged in the 2019 election we would increase those thresholds. We made a big step towards that goal in my first budget in 2020, increasing the national insurance threshold to £9,500. Today, we take the next step. Our current plan is to increase the next threshold this year by £300. But I'm not going to do that, Mr Speaker. I'm going to increase it by the full £3,000. And so my final announcement today is this. I can confirm before the end of this parliament in 2024, for the first time in 16 years, the basic rate of income tax will be cut from 20 to 19 pence in the pound. So let's just recap some of those key announcements and some of the rest which were announced in that speech, in that statement. Um, so we've got national insurance threshold raised, as you heard there, by £3,000 to £12,750. The fuel duty to be cut by 5p for one year. The basic rate of income tax to drop from 20 to 19p per pound from 2024, so we can guess when the next general election is coming. 
scrapping VAT on home insulation. And this is what was omitted from the statement. There will be no increase to universal credit beyond the 3.1%, which was announced last year. Now, given that inflation is set to hit 8.4%, you can see how that works out. That's going to be a real terms benefit cut and a very big one, in fact, for the poorest members of society. I'm joined now by economist Gary Stevenson. Welcome to the show. And can you start by, you know, explaining whether or not you think Sunak's statement today met the moment, met the challenge that that we all currently face? What Rishi Sunak did today is going to do nothing for the disaster, the disaster that is happening for ordinary people at the moment. Like ordinary people's cost of living is going to go up thousands of pounds here, thousands of pounds. In many cases, this is thousands of pounds, which people don't have at all. So they're not going to be able to spend this. These people are not going to be able to find the money needed to feed their families and heat their homes. And Rishi Sunak here is giving a few hundred back to a select few. It's not even enough to cancel the significant tax rises that he's brought in. So it's definitely not going to be enough to support people who need much, much more. That 8.4% inflation, can you talk a bit more about that from like an economist perspective? Just because that is a, an enormous sum. If you look at sort of the previous, you know, inflation of the previous 10 years or the previous 30 years, this is something that I've never seen in my lifetime, inflation at this level. Is that nearly all about energy? Is that what's going on here? I'm very glad you asked me that because there's been a lot of discussion about this recently. Now, I came out at the beginning of COVID. I think it's important to realize during co- COVID was the biggest economic crisis since the Great Depression. It was an enormous, you know, one in a hundred years economic crisis. And the way we resolved that was purely by printing an enormous amount of money. And it truly was enormous, 450 billion pounds. That's 10,000 pounds for every adult in the country. Now that doesn't disappear, right? If you are out there and you don't have 10,000 pounds more in your bank account now than you did before COVID, someone else has your 10,000 pounds. And the statistics show almost certainly they do because that money was accumulated largely by the richest people in society. So you're talking about the richest people in society now sitting on 70, 80, 90, 100 grand cash more than they did pre-COVID. And that's how we dealt with the crisis, right? This is not really a mature way to deal with the crisis, right? And we should have been saying, okay, look, we've got a disaster. We're going to print the money. We know it's going to end up with the richest. But afterwards, if we don't do anything, we'll get inflation and we'll get a house price spike and we'll get a massive increase in inequality. So we need to make sure we're ready to tax the richest afterwards. But what have we actually done? We've raised national insurance, which attacks specifically on working people, which specifically excludes, by the way, the income of billionaires. So we've dealt with the crisis in such a way that the rich have accumulated a truly unbelievable amount of cash. Now we're in a situation where prices are going through the roof. Ordinary people can't afford to feed their families. And we're raising taxes on ordinary working people. And you have to ask why Rishi Sunak, whose father-in-law is a billionaire, has made those decisions. Let's look at some reactions to the spring statement from, from The Economist we often hear from after these events. Torsten Bell is director of the Resolution Foundation. So that's a think tank that talks a lot about income for, for middle-income earners. Um, he tweets, right, that's it, all done. Big picture, OBR gives the Chancellor a fiscal windfall that he spends on burnishing his credentials as a tax cutter, not on prioritising help for low- and middle-income households. Now, the context there, the fiscal windfall that he's talking about is because inflation has meant that people are moving into higher income tax bands than they were on before because incomes are rising and they haven't changed that threshold. So actually, the Treasury is getting more tax receipts than it expected. And as Torsten Bell is saying there, that could have been used to raise the incomes of people who are facing the sharp end of this inflation that we're seeing. Instead, he's 
promise some tax cuts in a few years' time because he wants to be leader of, of the Conservative Party. Jonathan Portes next. He is Professor of Economics at King's College London. Before the spring statement, so this morning, he tweeted, increase in inflation since October 2021 means if Chancellor doesn't increase cash spending on public services, there will be large real terms cuts compared to what was announced then. So 4 billion cut on education, 1.5 billion cut on defence, 6 billion on NHS social care. Now what's going on here? Obviously, if you've got inflation, the cost of people working in education, the cost of people working in the health service, and also, you know, some of the fixed goods, you, some of the goods you have to sort of buy to, to provide those services, that's all going up. So you would need, if people's wages are going to catch up with that, you would need to increase those budgets. And that didn't happen. So Jonathan Portes updated um, his his Twitter feed afterwards, after the speech happened to say, and this is exactly what he's done, austerity by stealth austerity by self, because this is real-term cuts. You say we're announcing a 3% increase to the NHS, but then there's 6% inflation. That is a real-term cut. Next, Paul Johnson, director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. He said, oh, for goodness sake, what is the possible justification for cutting income tax rate while raising the national insurance rate? Drives a further wedge between taxation of unearned, unearned income and earned income. And that's because you pay income tax on unearned income. So inheritance, for example, or capital gains, you don't pay national insurance on, on those things. He says, yet again, benefits pensioners and those living off rents at expense of workers. And finally, Miata Fanbula is director of the New Economics Foundation. She said, still reeling from the fact that Rishi Sunak did nothing to help the poorest households. Universal credit going up by 3.1% when inflation is due to reach 8%. Massive squeeze on top of the £20 cut to universal credit last autumn. Super important context there. This is a real-term cut for people on universal credit because inflation is 8%. They're only rising by 3%. And that is after £20 cut per week. So the cuts that people on benefits are seeing to their incomes, phenomenal right now, phenomenal. Gary, how do you think this statement is going to go down with, with the economics profession? Is there anyone that's saying, oh, this is actually really good economics? Or are most people looking at this and thinking, what, what is he doing? Most of what I've seen is, is negative response because people know that it's it's deck chairs on the Titanic at this point. We have a real disaster and he's not doing enough. But to be honest, I'm not really that concerned about what economists think because economists are not the people on the sharp end of it here. You know, we are seeing a real disaster. People are going to lose their homes. People are going to not be able to heat their homes. People are going to get sick. People will become homeless. Like people will die because of this. This is a serious, serious economic disaster. And it's, it's not a laughing matter. It'll be ordinary people that will be hurt. But there was one statement there, which one of those economists said, which was austerity by stealth. And I think that is a really important comment here, because what we're also seeing here is redistribution by stealth. While ordinary people are struggling, like more than they've ever struggled, really, in the last 20, 30 years, worse than 2008, what has happened to the richest people in society? The average billionaire increased their wealth during COVID by £630 million. That's the largest ever single year increase in wealth in the history of this country. The richest people increased their wealth by 22% in a single year, which is seven to eight times the normal rate. So we've seen the biggest ever increase in rich and super rich wealth. And now we have an economic disaster. And Richard Zonick is not raising taxes on the richest. Why? Why is that? Never in the history of economics has it been more obvious what has to be done. We had a crisis which the government dealt with in such a way that the rich profited enormously, enormously. That has led to a crisis in living standards for ordinary people. And you can only avoid that by taxing the richest. And why is he not doing it? And I would encourage anybody out there to ask your politicians why are you not looking to the richest in society who have not only not contributed during COVID, 
but made their biggest ever profit in the history of this country. Why are we not asking them to contribute more? Let's talk about one particular group who are screwed over at the moment by Rishi Sunak. That's students. The threshold to start paying back student loans is set to fall from £27,000 to £25,000. And the expiration date for loans is also set to rise. Your unpaid debts are currently white after 30 years. That's increasing to 40 years. This means that people will be repaying their student loans into their 60s. A very depressing thought. This chart from the IFS shows the consequences of that. Thanks to the changes, groups in the third and fourth lowest income deciles will be almost £30,000 poorer over the courses of their lives, or around 2% poorer every year. The Office for Budget Responsibility also modelled these changes. Their report, which they released today, said, in effect, the reforms amount to the equivalent of an income tax rise for most existing and new students over their working lives. This reflects, first, repayment thresholds being frozen for existing borrowers and lowered for new borrowers, equivalent to freezing or reducing the income tax personal allowance. And second, the extension of loan terms from 30 to 40 years for new borrowers, equivalent to imposing a 9 percentage point marginal income tax rise for a period of up to a decade for those affected three decades into the future. Now, in case you're not already feeling pissed off about your futures. I've got one more data point for you. This is from the Office for National Statistics report on housing affordability, again, released today. They've, they've all been put out today. It shows that in the year 2020 to 2021, house prices in England went up by 14%. At the same time, incomes fell by 1%, which means that in a single year, housing became 15% less affordable. That's in England. In Wales, housing became 10% less affordable. The ONS also has a bit on that report where you can put in any area and see how house prices have changed over time. I'm from Wolfham Forest, so I put that in. In 1997, house prices were 3.5 times higher than average annual incomes in the borough. They are now 15.6 times higher than average incomes. 15.6 times higher than average incomes, and that's from 3.5 times higher than average incomes in the space of 25 years. Gary, I feel like we've, we've sort of talked a lot about how this government is engaged in class war. Do you think it is also engaged in somewhat of a, of a generational war against the young? I'm well aware that it's very often the youngest who are on the sharp end of this. You know, I'm not that old myself. I see how difficult it is for people to some, for some people, it's become an impossible dream, the idea of financial security, the idea of getting a house. And the ways that the government has made changes today will, will just make that worse. But I'm hesitant to start talking about it as war on the young because, you know, I come from quite a poor background and I know where I'm from, there's going to be older people who are choosing between putting the heating on and eating food. You know what I'm saying? So I don't want to make it like it's a clear distinction here, like this is about the old versus the young because there are a lot of old people here who are going to be really, really suffering. And, you know, I went to LSE and I just recently did a postgrad at Oxford. And I guarantee you, the students there are not going to be suffering. So it's not as clean as old versus young here. And I worry a little bit if we get too much drawn into this old versus young debate, then we're going to create a situation where we can't draw older people into our movements to push for change. And the fact is, young people are being hurt here. And old people often are voting for a system that allows that. And I think often that's because they don't realise just how bad the situation is for young people. So for me, I'm always trying to reach out to old people and say, look, if you allow this to happen, your kids and your grandkids will not get homes and they will not be financially secure. But it's important that we draw them in to support our movement so we can 
create change rather than exclude them. So I understand fully very, very often it's younger people who are on the sharp end of this. But also those old people are those young people's parents and grandparents. And we need to persuade them to help us make change. About those price rises, I know you, you know, used to work in the city. You're all about making predictions where a price is going to go. Looking at those figures, so in 1997, houses in Wolfham Forest were 3.5 times average annual incomes. Now they are 15.6 times average annual incomes. Is that a bubble that you expect will burst? Or is this just, this is just how much houses wish, cost now? And that's how much they're going to cost wish, for forever? I wish this was a bubble. I wish I could come here and tell you this was a bubble and it's going to get better and we're going to wake up and things are going to be all right, but it's not. I'm sorry. I, I, and I know like, I make a lot of pessimistic predictions and sometimes I'm not fun to listen to, but I'm the guy who's been right for 15 years. All right. I've made millions of pounds doing this. We are moving towards becoming a very, very unequal country. Go to really, truly unequal places and look at what housing affordability is. Go look at India. Go look at Mumbai. Go look at what this country was like 100 years ago when it was much, much more unequal. Those are real situations where working people cannot ever buy property. Okay. And we have moved significantly forward in the last two years in terms of inequality. We're sitting in a situation now where the richest people in the country are sitting with 200, 300 grand in their bank account more. So don't even dream house prices are going to come down. I expect they will double from here in the next few years because of the huge amount of money that's poured into rich people's bank accounts. And it gives me no pleasure, no pleasure to say that. But that is what is going to happen if we allow a crisis to lead to a situation where rich people are stacking up hundreds of thousands of pounds of cash. And if you don't want that to happen, you have to really look at how do we meaningfully tax rich and super rich people. You know, that's what I'm trying to do. So... People, if you're watching, get behind it. Can I ask you one more question about inflation? Because when we used to have low inflation and people on the left were sort of talking about, you know, inflation wouldn't be that bad a thing. The argument that was made is that inflation, who it is bad for is, is creditors, so people who lend money, and who it's good for is people who are in debt because it shrinks the amount of, it shrinks your, your pool of debt because if money is becoming less valuable, the amount you owe is is becoming, you know, in, in real terms, less. Is that happening now? Is Is that you know, that one progressive element of inflation? Are we seeing that now or is, uh, or, or is there a reason we're only talking about this as something that's hitting poor people? That in and of itself would be a good thing. You have inflation, it erodes the debts which are held by poorer people, it erodes the cash held by richer people, but you need to understand what's causing the inflation. Listen, I cannot overestimate this enough because people are not talking about it. We gave the richest people in the country 450 billion pounds cash. There is no way you are going to draw that, that that is good for poor and ordinary people. If you give the richest people in the country 450 billion pounds cash, they will get richer and the rest of us will get poorer. They will consume more natural resources. They will own more housing. And the rest of us will have lower quality of living and have less housing and less assets. You know, inflation in itself can be helpful. But if you create that inflation by pumping money into the bank accounts of rich people, of course, it's going to make the rest of us poorer. And we're seeing that now. And we're going to see that happening unless we do more about it. I suppose that makes sense because obviously the, the reason it could make debts smaller is if it makes your incomes larger, right? So what matters is the proportion of your, of your debt compared to your income. If this inflation isn't being driven by rising incomes, it's being driven by something else, then yeah, it's not going to shrink. Yeah, cash in rich people's bank accounts. You know, that's not going to benefit the people listening, unfortunately. So we need people's wages to be going up by 8.4% if inflation is going up by 8.4%, essentially. Yeah, ideally, or more. Or more, I agree. Gary Stevenson, always a pleasure to have you on. And we'll get you back on soon. Super insightful as ever. Thank you. Next story. The money-saving expert Martin Lewis has been fighting the good fight for those likely to be hit hardest by the cost of living crisis. Earlier this week, he begged the government to help people on lower 
income, saying he had almost run out of advice for households facing spiralling costs. And he's been on Sky News to say what he thinks of Sunak's announcements. We are still standing on a personal finance precipice in the UK. Uh, The Chancellor is now the only person who can pull us back from that. And I don't think what we saw today is enough to do it. The best way to think of this is by October, based on current estimates, it's likely that people, a typical household's energy bills will be £1,300 higher than at the same point last October. There is nothing close in this budget to covering that amount of money. And we need to remember that energy bills are regressive. The richest don't pay that much more than the poorest. They're pretty much flat. It's almost a poll tax of energy bills. So that 1,300 quid hike is hitting everybody. And the poorest in society, uh, when we remember that food prices and fuel prices and council tax and water bills and broadband and mobile phones are all going up as well, never mind that £1,300. The measures that we're seeing today, which even in the best case scenario, um, even if you couple it with the 150 quid council tax rebate the Chancellor announced a couple of months ago, and the £200 loan not loan to help with energy, he also announced, even at the top end is about 600, 650 quid of help. Whereas on energy bills alone, you're talking a £1,300 rise. We are moving to many people on low incomes now to a heating the human, not heating the home situation, which is, is you know, pretty hard to hear. Uh, and of course, insulation is great if you can afford it. Uh, adding extra what, what insulation. That, what does on, that mean, heating the human, not heating the home? I'm just not clear. Well, don't turn your central heating on. Sit in a sleeping bag. And I'm not, this is not advice. This is the, 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 the tangible situation people are putting themselves in whether you'll have to get an electric blanket to heat you and leave the, leave the house to be cold. That is a tactic I'm seeing many people talking about doing. They will heat the individual so that the whole house is cold, but you try and keep yourself warm within it. Stark, isn't it? It is stark. Heating the human, not heating the home. So you, you can't afford to live in an environment where it's, you know, we're not talking about like a, a really toasty house. We're talking about a, a place where it's reasonable to live and walk around and feel comfortable in. No, you're living in a room, a flat, a house, which is you know, too cold to feel comfortable in, freezing. And so you are heating just yourself personally in a sleeping bag, under a blanket. It's quite claustrophobic just to think about it, because obviously the moment you move, the moment you move around, the moment you leave your sleeping bag, you're going to be freezing, right? You know, it's on the spectrum, it's moving towards homelessness, isn't it? Your house can't provide what you need, so you have to stay in a sleeping bag yourself. Also, really interesting the way he talks about this is like a poll tax. Because the poll taxes and what was proposed by Margaret Thatcher to replace council tax incredibly, you know, council tax is already quite regressive, but this was going to be even more regressive because every every person would pay exactly the same amount of tax, incredibly regressive. That was very, very politically unpopular, led to riots, one of the contributing factors to Margaret Thatcher standing down. And I think Martin Lewis makes a very credible, sensible point to say that this is essentially like that because it's incredibly regressive. However, much your household earns, you'll pay a very similar amount of money on your energy bill. So that's a, a, a huge proportion of someone on a low incomes income and a very small proportion of someone on a high incomes income. So it, it functions like a poll tax. And let's just hope that it has a similar political response to the poll tax. Are we going to see riots about energy bills? I mean, it would definitely be warranted, but Rishi Sunak's job, you know, and Boris Johnson's job is to say, oh no, this doesn't actually have anything to do with us. It's because of Ukraine. It's because of global situations. Well, maybe your job is to protect people 
from those developments which are outside of their control. And you can quite easily protect people. You just have to make the political choice to do something like what Labour is saying, a windfall tax on, on energy companies to properly subsidise people so that they can afford to heat their homes and they don't have to spend their days you know, under blankets and in, in sleeping bags. This is just as much a political choice as it was a political choice for Margaret Fatch to try and introduce the poll tax. But we're going to have a government and government ministers who are saying, no, this is a natural disaster. And to be honest, there's just not that much we can do about it. I've been thinking, why are we hearing so much from Martin Lewis now when we haven't previously? And I have to say, maybe I just wasn't paying attention previously, but it does seem to me that his critiques are more ubiquitous of the government than they have ever been. And I think the reason is probably because of the nature of, of the injustice of government policies at the moment. And it's, it's, it comes down to arithmetic. You know, if you are talking about how have we not managed to have a green transition, if you're talking about why do we have low productivity in the economy, then talking to a money-saving expert, someone who is very good at talking about personal finances, you know, they're not necessarily going to give you the most insightful answers. That's not their specialism. But in this case, what we're seeing is simple arithmetic. You've got inflation of 8%. Prices are going up by, by 8%. For the poorest, it's going to be higher than that because they spend a bigger proportion of their incomes on food and energy, the things which are going up the most. Yet benefits are only going up 3%. If you work in the public sector, your wages will only be going up about 3%, right? And that's, that's an arithmetic question. If prices are going up by at least 8% and your income's only going up by 3%, then there's going to be a massive shortfall. You, know, you, you don't need to be an economist with a PhD to work that out. You just need a basic grasp of numbers to the point that 8% is bigger than, is bigger than 3%, right? So you've got this shortfall, which is completely undeniable, which Rishi Sunak has not just... You know, he hasn't come out and said explicitly, oh, this is, no, it's, I, I know, I know that I'm going to be making most British people poorer this year, but that's fine. No, he, he's sort of doing this odd sleight of hand where he is suggesting that actually he is helping people and he is improving people's incomes over this period of crisis. And all you need is someone like Martin Lewis to say, actually, he, he's not. The numbers do not add up here. The numbers that Martin Lewis is also, you know, very rightly often highlighting is when it comes to energy bills, energy bills are going to increase by 700 pounds in April. By October, they're expected to rise again. So it could be that by October, they are £1,300 higher per year than they were last year. And yet the government is only giving people £350. £200 of that has to be paid back. And it has to be paid back from future bills when all the estimates suggest they are going to be even higher than they are now. This isn't a question of political economy where you have to have a real deep grasp of how the economy works, how productivity works, how we could have a green transition. No, it's, it's simple arithmetic. Bills are going up by lots more than the support to pay them is going up by. Your bills are going up, your wages aren't going up. Prices are going up 8%, wages are going up 3%. That means we're all getting poorer and, and all you need to do to work that out is basic arithmetic. And I think that is why Martin Lewis has been so successful at cutting through, essentially, the government's bullshit on this. Because there is no way that Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson can possibly suggest they are doing anything other than making poor people poorer. And in fact, I'm essentially making most of us poorer. The vast majority of, of, of the country are going to be poorer because of the relationship between inflation and, and how wages are well, failing to increase to that level, how benefits are failing to increase to that level. And support for public services, by the way, as well. So this is going to be, as Jonathan Portez said in those tweets I showed you earlier, this is going to be a real-term cut for basically all of our public services. So we've got a, a government which has been talking 
for months about how they'll do everything to support the NHS. Well, guess what? All of those increases they promised to the NHS now count for nothing because we've got 8% inflation. So either you're going to have to employ fewer doctors and nurses, or you're going to have to pay doctors and nurses less, which is unjust to begin with. These are the people who kept us all going through the pandemic. Lots of them have PTSD, by the way. This pandemic was really, really hard. They said, oh, to recognize, to recognize all you've done for Britain, to recognize the hard work you've put in, we'll give you a 3% pay rise. Then within a few months, oh, actually, inflation's 8%, so it's a real terms cut. And, oh, that's out of our control. There's nothing we can do about that. Sorry, we couldn't possibly increase your wages to meet inflation. So after having the, the two most difficult years of your life, we are going to give you a pay cut. But that's what the government is telling people who work for the NHS right now. That was all, all that clapping on the Thursday, all that clapping on the Thursday. Oh, we, we really appreciate these people. We're never going to forget how important NHS workers are to us. What do we do within a year? I don't want to say the pandemic ending, but within a year of sort of the height of the pandemic, we're giving them you know, a 5% pay cut. It should be much more of a political scandal than it is. I mean, we're seeing at the moment because of the Ukraine crisis, people are looking at national security. Boris Johnson, his ratings are going up somewhat compared to Partygate. But this is what should bring his government down. It doesn't seem to be happening right now. During the debate that followed Rishi Sunak's spring statement, Richard Bergen raised the question of a windfall tax on energy giants. It's an idea being put forward by the Labour Party to fund support for households paying extortionate energy bills. Let's take a look. Oil and gas giants making £900 profit per second, per second, whilst at the same time, millions of people are having sleepless nights worrying if they're going to be able to heat their homes. Does the Chancellor think that the rights of these firms to make these super profits is more important than the rights of people to stay warm? And if not, then surely now is the time for a windfall tax on these profits to fund lowering people's energy bills. Uh, just to remind the honourable gentleman, we do already have a supplementary corporation tax on oil and gas companies. It's, they pay 40% corporation tax. Do they, Rishi? Do they pay 40% corporation tax? Do companies like BP and Shell really pay that much? Well, last year, the Observer reported that Shell and BP paid no corporation tax or production levies on North Sea oil operations between 2018 and 2020 and claimed tax reliefs of nearly £400 million. That's according to annual payments to government's reports analysed by The Observer. Over the same three-year period, they paid shareholders more than £44 billion in dividends. And Channel 4 News showed that BP in fact paid no corporation tax on North Sea production for five years. In 2020, BP's effective tax rate was minus 19%. In 2019, it was even more staggering, minus 54%. That's compared to the headline tax rate of 40% set by the Chancellor. In fact, since the Paris Agreement, BP has had £493 million in tax rebates. In the last three years, BP hasn't paid a positive amount of tax into the UK. It's received net tax repayments. What these figures show is that this isn't just a 2022 problem. This is a result of a tax regime that has been designed to be incredibly generous to the point where it is the most generous in the world. I think it's incumbent upon the Chancellor and the government to claw back via a windfall tax some of those huge profits. So let's get this straight. Not only did BP not pay corporation tax on fuel sourced in the North Sea for several years, they actually got 
additional money from our treasury in subsidies. It's not like Rishi Sunak doesn't know that major companies that, you know, on paper pay 40% corporation tax don't actually pay corporation tax in reality, let alone 40%. This is a man who has had a long history, a long lucrative career working in investment banks and in hedge funds. I am sure he is very well acquainted with the ways in which the ultra-rich avoid paying their fair share of tax. He knows a lot more about that than he does about, about the world that the rest of us live in, which is a world in which 54% increases in energy bills threatens to plunge us and our communities into absolute poverty, or where parents are having to go without food in order to ensure that their kids have enough to eat. That's the world we're all living in. Sunak doesn't live in that world. Sunak's world is oil and gas CEOs, Shell and Exxon directors, et cetera, et cetera. So for him to say that those companies are actually paying 40% in corporation tax is insulting. He absolutely knows better because that's the world that he operates in. And again, this is another example, not only the particular tax regime that Tessa Khan outlined in that clip, but also the fact that Rishi Sunak feels emboldened to stand up in parliament and say something like that and conceal uh, what is actually happening rather than advocating for British people. Again, an example of how massive companies, massive corporations rely on politicians, rely on the state, particularly Tory politicians, in order to create the conditions for them to be able to make the highest possible profit, whether that means lying to the population, whether it means creating complicated tax regimes that the ordinary person couldn't understand or have access to, but the absolute richest can use it to get away with not paying their fair share, while we're all being asked to pay higher national insurance at a time when cost of living is, is more unaffordable than it has been in living memory. These are examples of, again, how the free market is not the free market. The free market is not free from the state. It actually relies on the state intervention. But our state repeatedly chooses to intervene, not on behalf of us, but rather on behalf of absolute wealthiest. But we also have to, to grapple with how unhinged the refusal to put a windfall tax on oil and gas companies is not only in the context of the cost of living crisis and the fact that the energy crisis is being exclusively absorbed by working class people, people who don't have the bit, don't have any bandwidth left to absorb any more crisis, and not by ultra wealthy energy companies who continue to make obscene profits, but also when you think about the climate crisis, you know we are. We have fewer than 10 years to reduce greenhouse gas emissions dramatically enough to avoid catastrophic and irreversible climate change. That means massively scaling back oil and gas companies. It means no more fossil fuel projects being commissioned. And yet Sunak is not only using that precious time to actively subsidize and promote the oil and gas industry by, by shielding them from the energy price crisis at the expense of everyday people. But as recently as last month, Rishi Sunak was calling for increased investment in oil and gas drilling in the North Sea. That is catastrophic. That is an abomination to do that at a time when we should be throwing all of our resources 
behind transitioning to a decarbonized economy and reducing the chokehold that these companies have over our energy system and over our economy. If, if we had anything approaching a functional democratic system, this would be the end of Sunak's career, particularly him calling for more investment in fossil fuel drilling in the UK. And the other abdication of responsibilities is the fact that this energy crisis could have been a real opportunity to defang and shrink the oil and gas industry and make the political and financial space for us to transition to affordable, publicly owned green energy. And instead, this chancellor is using this moment to extort the British public to artificially subsidize and resurrect an industry that is dying. And, and by the looks of it, is looking to take us all with it. And so this is doubly insulting from Sunak, both from the perspective of the cost of living crisis and the hike of energy bills, but also from the longer term perspective of the climate crisis. So really, it's insulting and, and catastrophic on multiple levels. It does just demonstrate, well, I suppose a lack of imagination is maybe being a little bit too kind to them, because I think there's a lot of malice here as well. But obviously, how you should react to this situation is not just removing VAT on the, the equipment needed to install insulation on homes, but it should be a massive windfall tax. And then you spend a massive windfall tax on the fossil fuel companies. And then you spend billions, actively spend billions, not just give people a tax cut on, on insulation, actively spend billions and billions and billions of pounds of insulating everyone's homes, because then that deals with the cost of living crisis at the same time as dealing with the climate crisis. You might as well deal with two crises at the same time. Um, Nicola Curtin with a fiver. We used to have to read the small print of a Tory budget to find out how well the working class has done. This is no longer the case. Yeah, absolutely right. And I do think that sort of comes back to that arithmetic point, right? You, if inflation is 8% and our wages, benefits, public sector pay is going up 3%, we're all getting poorer. You don't, you don't need an economics PhD to know that, to understand that. Next story, another outrageous one when it comes to Britain's economy. P&O ferries caused public outrage when they sacked 800 members of staff by Zoom call. They are then reported to have replaced them with overseas workers being paid £1.80 an hour. We talked on a previous show about how this is an example of the darkest side of capitalism. And today at Prime Minister's Questions, Boris Johnson said P&O actions had probably broken the law. Well, Mr Speaker, we, we condemn the callous behaviour uh, of P&O. And I think, and I think that it is, I think that it is, I think that it is no way to treat hardworking uh, employees. And I can tell him that we will not sit by, uh, Mr. Speaker, because uh, because under Section 194 of the Trades Union and Labour Relations Act of 1992, it looks to me, Mr. Speaker, as though the company concerned has broken the law, and we will be taking action. Therefore. And we'll, we will be encouraging uh, workers themselves to take action under the 1996 Employment Rights Act. Both acts, Mr. Speaker, passed by Conservative governments. And, and, uh, and if the company is found guilty, uh, then they face fines running into millions of pounds, Mr. Speaker. And in addition, uh, we will be taking steps to protect all mariners who are working in UK waters and ensure that they are all paid the living wage, Mr Speaker. Johnson said there that P&O broke the law under a very specific piece of legislation. That's the Trade Union and Labour Relations Act of 1992. 
And it is true, under that Act, employers are obliged to give the government at least 45 days' notice if they intend to make 100 or more employees redundant. They can be fined an unlimited sum if they don't. As you'll know, P&O Ferries only gave one day's notice to the government for sacking 800 of their staff. However, the company deny they have broken any laws. They refer to a change in the Labour Relations Act made in 2018. This excluded ship owners from any requirement to notify the UK government of any redundancies. The amendment says that when it comes to seafarers, the employer shall give the notification required to the competent authority of the state where the vessel is registered instead of the Secretary of State. Despite operating in the UK, P&O's ferries are registered in Cyprus, the Bahamas and Bermuda. P&O said in a statement, the very clear statutory obligation in the particular circumstances that applied was for each company to notify the competent authority of the state where the vessel is registered. All relevant vessels are registered outside the UK. Notification was made to the relevant authorities on March the 17th. For their part, the Seafarers Union are disputing that the 2018 amendment lets P&O off the hook. They argue that the sackings were illegal because under British law, redundancies have to be negotiated with workers and unions, and that this applies in this instance because the contracts of the P&O workers specified they were employed within the UK's jurisdiction. Francis O'Grady at the TUC said, for all their bluster and denial, all the signs point to P&O breaking the law. UK law requires companies to consult with workers and unions before making redundancies. In their letter to ministers last night, the company are clear that they did not do this. I'll leave this one for the lawyers to argue. I'm not sure I can give you a categorical answer about the law there. In the meantime, though, let's look at how Keir Starmer responded to Boris Johnson's handling of the sackings. 82,000 seafarers in this country. I've spoken to dockers, engineers, deckhands and sailors. They're all worried about what this means for them. Yeah. This morning, one of them said to me, if P&O can get away with this, other companies will get rid of us too and replace this with cheap labour from abroad. Why does the Prime Minister think that they will take a crumb of comfort from his half-assed bluster and waffle today? Labour are pushing for the government to ban fire and rehire practices. That would be in all industries. We know that the legality of this one, because it was on a ferry, seems to be complicated. But we know that British Gas, for example, they used hire and fire to get rid of loads of their workers. And that was very much uncontroversially within the UK's jurisdiction. Finally, as I said, the legality or otherwise of the, this particular series of sackings of P&O workers is above my pay grade. What is clear, though, is that the 2018 amendment we've outlined has put those workers, those P&O workers, at a weaker position than they otherwise would B. And it's worth noting who was in charge of that change. It's this man, then Transport Secretary Chris Grayling. Grayling, after stepping down from the cabinet in 2019, went on to take up a lucrative job advising Hutchison Ports. This holding company, based in the Virgin Islands, owns and operates Harwich and Felixstowe Ports, and they now pay Grayling £100,000 per year for seven hours' work per week. That works out as £275 per hour, which is 152 times the hourly pay of the new P&O ferry employees. There are lots of different things at play here. Lana Khalili writes a lot about how the shipping industry offers this really interesting portal into understanding 
how neoliberalism functions, right? She talks about how, you know, the shipping represents a huge part of the economy. 90%, I think it is, of, of cargo still travels by, by ship. And so maritime laws, you know, laws governing shipping, and which includes employment laws, which is really central, actually, to how it's, it's often a, a kind of laboratory for how other workers are going to then be, be treated. It's very central to how capitalism uh, operates. And this affects commercial as well as trade uh, shipping. So it will impact these, these P&O workers as well. And we're also seeing here the reason that workers from abroad can be paid £1.80 an hour is not because they have inherently less value than British workers. It's because they've been made that way by global inequality, by, you know, systemic racism. These are the reasons why some workers have a lower hourly rate than others. But also what we're seeing in, again, really classic form, is just like the layers and layers of outsourcing and offshoring that lies at the heart of this iteration of capitalism. It enables these companies like P&O to avoid labor regulation through these inscrutable and very unheard of loopholes, you know, loopholes that aren't widely known by, by the workforce, to exploit their workers, to evade labor regulation, to exploit nature as well. You know, shipping is a very environmentally unfriendly industry. And so whether or not P&O actually broke the law here, which, as you said, you know, we don't know that yet. But the point is, is that these kinds of offshoring and outsourcing strategies are often legal. Companies have used them legally, you know, within the remit of the law in order to enable them to, for example, pay their workers £1.50 an hour to evade uh, labor regulations of countries that even though they kind of do a lot of their operation in that country, they're able to officially register as being as operating somewhere else. And these kinds of, of offshoring and outsourcing regulations are put in place deliberately, as we've seen in the case of Chris Grayling, to enable these major companies to evade regulations that are the outcome of very hard, hardly fought labor struggles. It enables them to, to kind of evade the things that we consider part of the post-war social contract. And so again, you know, this seems to be a recurring theme throughout this show. This is another example of free market capitalism relying on the government doing its bidding doing state intervention in order to enable them to squeeze every last drop out of their workforce. And when they're done with them, to just discard them and find cheaper uh, workers elsewhere. And this system also, as well as helping these companies to evade regulation and things that we consider to be part of our, our government, part of our government's policies, it also makes accountability really, really hard because suddenly you don't know who and where your target is. Your target is spread across multiple jurisdictions, or it's difficult to identify exactly what jurisdiction they operate in and what are the laws and the mechanisms of accountability that operate in those jurisdictions. And to what extent do workers have a say in those jurisdictions? Often not that much. And it allows our politicians in turn to evade responsibility by offshoring that responsibility onto different jurisdictions to to weaponize you know technicalities that don't make much sense in order to abdicate their own accountability and their own role in creating this legal uh, and policy architecture 
that allows for this kinds of strategies to be to be deployed. So not only does do these kinds of strategies uh, allow for regulations in the labor market to be evaded, but it makes it harder for workers to identify and therefore organize against the institutions that ultimately decide their fate. Next story. Prince William and his wife Kate are currently in the Caribbean on a week-long tour of Belize, Jamaica and the Bahamas. But so far they haven't always received the warm welcome they might have been expecting. Trouble started in Belize when a group of villagers protested the Cambridge's planned visit to a local cacao farm. Speaking to Sky News, this was Belizean journalist Charisse Halsall explaining the issue. Flora and Fauna International is one of the oldest wildlife conservation groups in the world. And they, they really run deep with the royals, Prince William. It's just the most recent in a line of patrons that stretch back all the way to his great-grandfather, George VI. So the issue comes up, is it neocolonialism that he continues to patronize this organization, which has just recently bought over 12,000 acres of land that is disputed as Mayan communal land. This dispute is something we in Belize have been reporting about for a very long time. And if police aides had just done a simple Google search, they could have seen that this was a problematic area and that probably it should have been reconsidered. It is unfortunate because I know that the Duke was traveling there for his conservation efforts. He gave FFI an Earthshot Prize last year, but this dispute has really caused Kensington Palace to reevaluate the trip to the cacao farm. That trip to the cacao farm was hastily cancelled, but Horsall also made a connection to larger themes of anti-colonialism in Belize. I'll tell you that the feeling toward the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and the rest of the country is a bit torn. There are those of us who are very happy to have royals come in and observe them and do the waving and the whole spiel. However, there are many of us in this country that are looking toward becoming a republic as Barbados did, as we feel that we are perhaps entitled to do. It's something that we are within the legacy of colonialism and neocolonialism starting to explore. And this trip has really brought that to the forefront. So while many Belizeans will be happy to welcome the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, there is a bit of resistance here. Also was referring there to the historic moment last year when Barbados's Prime Minister Mia Amor Motley declared Barbados a republic and broke the colonial link between her country and the UK. And things would get worse for the Cambridges when they arrived in Jamaica. Ahead of their visit, a group of 100 Jamaican doctors, lawyers, business leaders and politicians, amongst others, signed an open letter to the couple. It reads, We note that your visit is part of the celebrations to mark the 70th anniversary of the coronation of your grandmother and the 60th anniversary of Jamaica's independence. We see no reason to celebrate 70 years of the ascension of your grandmother to the British throne because her leadership and that of her predecessors have perpetuated the greatest human rights tragedy in the history of humankind. Her ascension to the throne in February 1952 took place 14 years after the 1938 labour uprisings against inhumane working living conditions and treatment of workers, painful legacies of plantation slavery which persist today. During her 70 years on the throne, your grandmother has done nothing to redress and atone for the suffering of our ancestors that took place during her reign and or during the entire period of British trafficking of Africans, enslavement, indentureship and colonisation. 
The letter also calls on William and Kate to apologise. It says, You who may one day lead the British monarchy are direct beneficiaries of the wealth accumulated by the royal family over centuries, including that stemming from the trafficking and enslavement of Africans. You therefore have the unique opportunity to redefine the relationship between the British monarchy and the people of Jamaica. If you choose to do so, we urge you to start with an apology and recognition of the need for atonement and reparations. There are many reasons why we see this as an important and necessary way forward for you for you both and the generations to come. We encourage you to act accordingly and just say you're sorry. Protests took place in the Jamaican capital Kingston calling for reparations and the removal of the Queen as head of state. They shouldn't be welcomed as leaders of the country, as representatives of the head of state. How are these two young white people now going to be here saying we are going to kowtow to them and we are going to bend and, and bow and kneel to them as, as if they are gods? Those days are done. Those, the monarchy is a relic. We should leave it behind. It's time for us to move forward and talk about, democrat, talk about the, the democratic process. Mr. William, I see you love to dance with the black people and you love to frolic, but speak some truth on this trip. Speak truth for what it's worth. Kate and the Duke and Duchess William, they haven't done anything to us, but they represent, they represent a certain kind of history that is unpleasant for our people. This visit, how much is the Queen paying for it? Isn't Jamaicans the one that are paying for it? And then, while the Duke and Duchess were spending their first night in the Caribbean nation, the Jamaican government pulled a blinder. The news was broken on Good Morning Britain. We can confirm at this morning, having spoken exclusively with Jamaica's opposition leader, who has been involved in high-level talks with the government, that they will be pushing ahead with, their, uh, with the process of removing the Queen as the head of state. We understand that the Prime Minister has set a two-year deadline for Jamaica to become a republic. But this all comes at a very awkward time for Prince William when he will be meeting with the Prime Minister and senior government officials later on today. Awkward doesn't really seem to cut it. And it looks like it's only going to get worse as the tour rolls on. Ahead of their visit to the Bahamas, the country's reparations committee released this letter. We, the members of the Bahamas National Reparations Committee, recognize that the people of the Bahamas have been left holding the bag for much of the cost of this extravagant trip. Why are we footing the bill for the benefit of a regime whose rise to greatness was fueled by the extinction, enslavement, colonization, and degradation of the people of this land? Why are we being made to pay again? And it goes on. The visit commemorates 70 years since Queen Elizabeth's accession to the throne of imperialism, more years than the Bahamas has been a sovereign nation. The BNRC asserts that we as Bahamians must have a clear understanding of what this trip truly means. We are not beholden to the British monarchy in any way, and we do not owe them a debt of gratitude for anything, not for our culture, religion, or system of governance. Instead, the monarchy has looted and pillaged our land and our people for centuries, leaving us struggling with underdevelopment left to pick up the pieces. Of course, not everyone agrees that Britain's colonial legacy in the Caribbean is something to regret. Calvin Robinson is a GB News presenter, a former Brexit Party candidate, and a fellow at the conservative think tank Policy Exchange. Speaking on Good Morning Britain, he made this argument about Jamaica. 
everyone conflates colonialism with slavery, and they're not the same thing. Slavery was a great evil, an absolute evil, uh, but it was not exclusive to Britain. Every empire indulged in that evil, but the difference is the British Empire eradicated it on a global scale at great expense. Colonialism also meant bringing legal systems, parliamentary democracy, industrial revolution, the English language, education, you know, the whole schooling system, Christianity. We have to look at history holistically and not just point at the bad things about our past, because all of those things are what Jamaica and Britain together. Dahlia, Gabriel, I want your comments on, on two things, that commentary there on GB News and whether or not the visit by the Duchess and the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge to the Caribbean has backfired. I mean, that was absolutely hysterical to watch. And the entire way in which this visit has unfolded has been a joy. It's been a joy to watch. Because I think that, and perfectly outlined by that Calvin Robinson clip, we live in delusion in this country. Um, the, the, the British brand leaves the rest of the world sort of starry-eyed. That is a delusion. And that there's this soft power that, that we can wield freely. And, and it's moments like this when that delusion is finally punctured because we rarely look outside of our borders to see what actually other countries are saying and thinking. Um, and I'm sure they've already lined up a bunch of people that they're going to blame for this, you know, whether it's student movements in the UK or statues or pronouns or Meghan Markle, I'm sure, and rehearsed with all of those um, excuses. But realistically, this is just people reacting objectively to the absurd reality that despite the Queen being allegedly head of state in Jamaica, which is hysterical, that people in Jamaica still have to get a visa in order to actually travel to the UK, in order to actually come to, to this country, despite all this bluster about the Commonwealth and shared histories and shared futures and all of this, the elderly members of the Windrush generation, many of whom were of Jamaican descent, were deported back to Jamaica where they hadn't really lived much of their lives. They'd spent most of their lives in this country, despite living their entire lives here because the government lost their papers. So clearly, we don't see ourselves as having a shared history and a shared future and a shared common good when it actually comes to the real material things that impact people's lives. When it comes to those things, we see nothing but contempt and disdain for the lives of Jamaican people. Yet you expect the monarchy to be welcomed with open arms, to you expect people to, to fall in love with Britain on the basis of some kind of shared Commonwealth uh, family just because you sent, you know, a rich British couple to, to sort of wave and smile at them. You're going to get humiliated because of that fundamental contradiction, which has been masked in this country by nostalgic delusion. You know, if Jamaica really is part of the mother country, if, you know, we really do share a head of state, then let's let's go for it. You know, open the borders, share the resources, put your money where your mouth is. But that's not what this is really about. And I think that we are really going to see a real shift in public opinion about the royal family, both globally, but also in Britain. Things like the cost of living crisis, the unpopularity of the, you know, Andrew's Charles generation, the charmlessness of Kate and Will, and the fundamental contradiction that Britain keeps knocking up against in terms of how it sees itself, global leader in human rights, a bringer of civilization, and how it has actually historically operated, which is through a bloody colonial history, 
that's becoming more and more untenable. And I think it's also important, actually, as we're talking about history, but it's also important to identify. And I think that those, especially with President Motley's statements, really that strength of feeling is not just about historical truth. It's not just because of what was done historically in the past. It's because the legacy of that is alive and well. The legacy of colonial damage is alive and well. The systemic underdevelopment of the global South, the theft of people, of resources, the effect of that is still ongoing. Countries of the global South are still picking up the pieces of that. And not only are they picking up the pieces of that, not only have they not been paid or not had the debt of what was taken to them recognized, but they are often actually the ones who are said to be paying debt to the countries that have historically stolen from them. And that's why, you know, in, in embedded in those statements, I was really glad to see reparations being put front and center, not as a, as a kind of like speculative thing, but as a real and just demand. You know, the Brits owe Jamaica something, but it, it's not a smile and a wave. It's something much more considerable, much more systemic than that. Dahlia, before we go to our very final section, I want to get your comment on some pictures from this trip. Um, so first up, I think we have Prince William in a bobsled, looking delighted. Um, then we have Will oh. and Kate next to a statue of Bob Marley, looking incredibly awkward. And then this is the bizarrest one. So we've got um, Will and Kate, who seem to be greeting a bunch of children kept in a prison. I don't think that actually is children kept in a prison, but it's an incredibly bizarre photo. I feel like in a way, the odds have been stacked against them on this trip, Dahlia. What do you think is going on? Is there some sort of anti-royal conspiracy that goes quite deep? They're just trying to make them look like fools? <laughs> I mean, it's just firstly, everyone needs to be put out of their misery. Like everyone there, the Bob Marley statue looks miserable. Kate and William <laughs> look miserable. Everyone's having a bad time. So first of all, just, yeah. But I think that really it is. it just speaks to that delusion in that, you know, the royal family have nothing but resources. They have nothing but image consultants, nothing but image management. And yet they thought that they could just drop the royal family in the middle of Jamaica, in the middle of particularly, you know, in the Caribbean, there's a lot of contestation right now about not only the, as I said, the colonial history, but the fact that like climate crisis, you know, th those colonial histories are coming to bear in the climate breakdown. Because as I said, those false and illegitimate debts that countries of the global north are currently demanding of these countries in the global south and the refusal to acknowledge the historical debt that is owed to many of these countries is making it impossible for them to actually finance the kinds of public infrastructure and make the kinds of political decisions they need to make in order to protect themselves from climate breakdown. And so particularly in this moment, as you know, we are talking about the histories of colonialism, how it's coming to bear in the current crises, the idea that with all of those resources, with all those image consultants, PR expertise and whatever, they thought that this would go so seamlessly and they thought that it would resonate not only with um, people in Jamaica, but also resonate with, you know, particularly young people in the UK. Again, it just speaks to that delusion. And it also tells me that the days are really numbered on the re relevance of the British monarchy. 
Tad Cantwell on the Super Chat says, up the new republics to be of the Caribbean. Absolutely. Agree with that sentiment. We're going to finish with something that's taken place while we've been on air. Rishi Sunak was speaking to LBC at the same time that we started. Very rude of him. Rishi Sunak has appeared on LBC to answer questions from the public following his spring statement. Here's what happened when he took a call from a single mum who is struggling to look after her children on the money that she makes. Who on paper has a good job and what's considered a good salary, but unfortunately the rising costs of everything, especially energy, have now put an intense strain on my ability to provide for my children. The significant, significant increase in our energy bill has meant that we don't have the boiler on. The lights are always off unless absolutely necessary. And when it's cold, we wear jumpers and coats. And sometimes you can see our breaths when we breathe. Now, despite working a full-time job, I'm having to find ways to bridge the gap. I've started cleaning houses and I spend every evening riding a bike, delivering for Uber Eats. I've managed to cut my grocery shop down to just £15 a week for an adult and two children. And I often go without myself to make sure the kids get what they need and they're fed. A £150 grant towards energy bills, which have risen by an average of £2,000 a year, just isn't going to cut it. I've just about been able to balance things up until this point, but I'm now facing paying out more each month than I'm making. What are you going to do to address the soaring cost of energy? And if you're not doing anything, please tell me what else you suggest I can be doing to help myself. Well, Hazel, thanks. Uh, thanks for your question. And look, I, I can't imagine how difficult your job is, right? I'm, I'm, I've got two kids as well. And I, you know, have obviously my wife and other helped with us. So, you know, enormous admiration for what you're doing. And it sounds like you're working your socks off to look after them. So um, tribute to you. But to put more money in your pocket, as you said, the measure I announced today, I'm sure will help you. And that was significant tax cut on national insurance. So again, not knowing your particular circumstances, but a typical worker is going to see £330 tax cut. Uh, starting in July. And, you know, I hope that that's helpful to you and, and your kids. Does that include the 1.2% rise? The, well, because you're putting up national insurance by 1.2% in April and then uh, cutting it for people at the, at yeah, the lower so end. Yeah, so the combination of those two things mean that 70% of workers and probably, as well given the situation she described herself being in, would be in this category. 70% of workers will pay less tax, even after accounting for the new levy. Um, so it will really help put extra cash in people's pockets starting in July. Okay, as a quick response from you. Um, I think the, res the response from Rishi um, is difficult because the support that is apparently being offered just isn't relative at all to what the rising costs are for us and you know the fact that energy is going to be going up again in october despite how significantly it has gone up already you're going to see more and more people relying on food banks then also not able to afford to work and you're going to have people in low-income families or families such as myself who may well get very very ill because they're unable to afford to heat their homes Super articulate caller, you know, with, with really, really legitimate concerns talking to Rishi Sunak. And then he uses such a politician's answer. I've got two children too, so I understand. You also have a billionaire wife, Rishi. Funny you forgot to mention that because that's actually quite significant when it comes to how difficult the cost of living crisis is going to be. However many kids you've got, this is not going to affect you like it affects that caller. I mean, also how, how that caller ended there, it's, she's exactly right. Rishi Sunak has, you know, given a few quid here and there. 
you, you look at this, that sort of the net effect of this announcement, this spring statement, is probably going to be that lots of households have a little bit more money than they would have had without this spring statement. But what that ignores is the context in which this is taking place. So the context in which this is taking place is that energy bills are going up by 52%. Inflation is at 8%. It's going to be higher than that for people on lower incomes. That's because they spend a, a greater proportion of their incomes on things like food and energy, less on luxuries, of course, less on just saving, essentially. Rishi Sunak is saying, well, you've got £350 here, you know, I'll sort of raise your, your threshold for paying national insurance over there. Maybe I'll give you a tax cut in 2024. I mean, obviously, that tax cut is not for people facing a cost of living crisis. That's a giveaway for his political career. And then he is there just straight face talking to someone who his policies are absolutely screwing over. The person on the phone there is someone who is going to have to deal with her costs rising by 10% and her income only rising by 3%. If she's on universal credit, her universal credit will only increase by 3% when inflation is at 8%. And his answer is, oh, there's a little bit here and there. I also thought his answer was a little bit slippery because he said the change in the threshold, the change in the threshold to when you start paying national in insurance um, will put £350 in many working people's pockets. Then he was asked, oh, does this count even after we include the increase you did to, to national insurance? And he didn't say yes. What he said was, when you take the two together, the majority of people will be paying less tax, the, the two of those together. So the £350 figure, which is sort of you know more impressive than just paying a little bit less tax, it could be the case that actually that caller, when you count those two taxes together, maybe she's only £10 better off, right? So I thought his answer there was slippery when it came to the technicality of it. I think Ian Dale could have pushed him a little bit harder on that. But anyway, I mean, the, the most important person in that call was the person who was calling Rishi Sunak. And his answers were just wholly unsatisfactory because his spring statement was wholly unsatisfactory. Because, and you, you know, you, we just can't, emphasize this enough. Prices are going up by 8% and incomes are only going up by 3%. So people who are already struggling are now screwed. And everyone knows it. It's simple arithmetic. And if Rishi Sunak cared about that, he'd be like, okay, well, prices are rising by 8%. Then what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to increase people's incomes by 8%. Otherwise, they're really going to struggle. No. It's like, oh, I couldn't do, I couldn't possibly do that. We've already supported you so much during coronavirus. So just as you've gone through two of the most difficult years of your life, you're going to have to deal with a 5% pay cut. It's bullshit. And I've got two kids. It's not going to cut it when ugh, his wife's a billionaire. I kind of wish Ian Dale had said that then as well. I've got two kids as well, so I understand. You don't understand. Let's wrap up there because it's getting quite late. Dahlia, Gabriel, it has been an absolute pleasure being joined by you this evening. And we'll be back on Friday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.